This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is George Stimson, and he's recently wrote a book with second edition. Title of the book is Goodbye Helter Skelter, A New Look at the Tate LaBianca Murders. And this is not his first book. He's also written the Cincinnati Crime Book, also the Iron Cross One First Class, and War Merit Cross First Class with Dietrich Meritz. And his website is you can, which you can see some of the this book and some other books he's associated with. One by uh, somebody we're going to talk about, which is goodbyehelterskelter.com. But he, this book, uh, he has a lot of very personal, firsthand information about uh, you know what's known as the Manson family or the Manson murders, and he can talk more about that. So George Stimson, are you there? You know, you're you're cutting out a little bit, so I hope you can hear me. Okay, uh, uh, it's yeah. I hear you fine. I think that there's something going on. Anyway, did you hear my whole intro? No, I didn't hear all of it. Okay. So, again, your website is goodbyehelterskelter.com. Yes. And the book is titled Goodbye Helter Skelter, A New Look at the Tate LaBianca Murders. And, again, the name of the author is George Stimson. So, George, thank you very much for being on the show. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. For people who don't know your background or haven't heard about this book, can you talk about how you became associated when you talk about it in your book, how you became associated with Charles Manson and what got you interested in the subject of the Manson murders? Well, I had an interest in true crime for a long time, ever since I was a kid. And there were two high profile crimes in the town I grew up in Cincinnati, which kind of uh, affected me at age you know, 10, 11 and 12. And that was going on. So I got very interested in true crime. Uh, why people are killing each other. The two main things that interest me are why people decide to commit murder. And then the other thing that interests me is the police methods that they use to track down murders. So I started doing uh, reading books about murders generally. And of course I came across Helter Skelter uh, eventually in 1975, I believe. And it's a very interesting case. So I just kept reading about it and uh, following up on it and more and more reading every book I could get, magazine articles or television interviews, anything like that, and just researching it more and more uh, as I was curious about the case because the official line uh, of the helter-skelter motive never made sense to me. Uh, that was the main thing that didn't make sense to me. There were a lot of other things in the book that uh, didn't jive with, for example, my experiences in the counterculture. So there were a lot of questions I had about the book that I just kept looking for answers. And eventually I got to meet some people who knew Manson and they uh, introduced me to Manson. And so I got to meet him 
and uh, came out here to California and visited him in Corcoran Prison, uh, California State Prison in Corcoran, almost 200 times. So, and speaking to him on the phone and corresponding and continuing my research, meeting people, going places, uh, reading court transcripts, parole hearings, you know, all just all sorts of research. And finally, I put it all together in my book, uh, which is an alternative, offers an alternative motive for those crimes, which, uh, in my opinion, exonerate Manson of those crimes because the big issue with Helter Skelter was that was that was supposed to be his personal motive for the crimes, and it was the demonstration of his intent behind the crimes. And legally, you have to prove intent to get a first-degree murder conviction. And the reason that they needed to get the Helter Skelter motive was because absent it, there was no other evidence that he had any intent to commit the crime. So. The helter-skelter motive, whereas you don't really have to prove motive in a court, you do have to prove intent. In this case, they use the motive to prove the intent. So if you take away that motive, you've removed intent from the legal equation, and therefore he shouldn't have been convicted. Right, and he was never, right, according to the facts, he was never at any of the crime scenes, the Tate-LaBianca crime scene. So Well, he was was in the LaBianca house, so he was there. I mean, he not was, at the uh, time of the murders, though, right? No, he left right before that. I mean, he was cutting it pretty close. But yeah, you're right. He wasn't there when the murders happened. But he was in the house shortly before the murders happened. And you and have a lot of personal quotes from Manson. Can you talk about kind of how your relation with, with him developed? Well, you know, uh, I wrote to him out of curiosity, as thousands of people do, or, or did rather. And, uh, he responded to me because I was able to refer to some mutual acquaintances that we had. So he could, you know, relate to that and ask them about me and find out a little bit about my quick character before he invested his time in me. And uh, we just uh, got together when I came out and started visiting him. Uh, I always treated him straight and uh, was interested in him and wanted to do things uh, to help him out because he'd been a terribly wrong person in my the way he was convicted and been demonized for decades for decades as the devil incarnate but i got yeah. along with him very well and uh had fun. that's pretty much how i got to know him it's just a, a process of seeing him again and again uh talking to him on the phone hundreds of times uh those quotes came from uh taped telephone conversations over a series of years i think we had uh oh 150 90 minute tapes which is where i got most of the quotes a lot of the other quotes come from interviews and other television programs uh, that other people did. So lots of uh, information. I like to, uh, when I'm writing, rather than uh, me explain what a person did, I would rather have the person explain it in their own words. So I'm always uh, looking for that kind of source material when looking at a person's motivations. Right. And that's important. I think that's one important aspect of your book is that you have all those first person statements of these people involved in this very well-known event. And right now your book has 108 five-star reviews on Amazon. So it's very well received. And you uh, also kind of, there's pictures of you with Manson, like your sense of him was different than this kind of boogeyman uh, media sensational sensibility that, that would be in the public. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, I mean, even before I met him, I, I kind of had a feeling that he would be a person that I could get along with. And he was very easy to get along with as long as you were straight with him. And so uh, it, he was very easy to get along with. I mean, he had a lot of pressures he was under and a, uh, concerns that I didn't have. So 
you know, we had totally different backgrounds and living circumstances, he being locked in prison and me not. But uh, generally, for the most part, we got along perfectly well. And, yeah, inter- and so you kind of unraveled a lot of these elements of the case, this shooting of the black guy, Hinman. You talk about mm-hmm. kind of how the family grew. Right. Um, can you talk about how your your perception of that may be different than Juliosi sensibility in Helter Skelter? Well, again, you know, I, I uh, he's looking at the case as, as the Tate-LaBianca murders, and I see the Tate-LaBianca murders as being chapters in a period, a series of events that happened that summer, starting with the Crow shooting. Uh, it was a, as I'm uh, trying to get across in my podcast, it was a kind of momentum-driven uh, story. Uh, events happened and they piled up on each other. It's it's a complicated case. I mean, there are so many characters and incidents and places involved. Uh, it's it's hard to uh, distill it down uh, easily, especially if uh, someone listening to you doesn't know all the references you're referring to, like names and places. But basically, uh, Charles Watson set up a burn of Bernard Crow. Uh, Crow called the ranch when he realized he'd been burned and talked to Charles Manson, and Manson went to try to straighten out the situation and ended up shooting Crow and thinking he'd killed him. So he thought he had killed somebody to straighten out Charles Watson, who they called Tex, his problem. And so Tex owed him that. And so there was that debt of uh, you owe me and up to the point of taking a human life, because that's what I did to help you and help all our friends here. And it was the same, similar with Hinman. That was another deal. There are a lot of variances to the motivations of why uh, people did things where I disagree with uh, Bugliosi, for example. He says that Manson shot Crow just because he would he would do it and he's a crazy killer and be be happy to shoot anyone. Whereas in my view, he was doing it um, to solve a problem not of his own making and that it was a pretty much uh, instance of self-defense, which if you look at Bernard Crow's courtroom testimony, he says, I was advancing on him, I was getting ready to go after him. And Crow was a considerably larger man than Charles Manson. I think he weighed close to 300 pounds when Manson uh, is a, a, a small, I mean, I'm 6'3", so I consider him a, a smaller man. He wasn't 5'2", by any means. That's another one of the myths out there. There's so many myths and misrepresentations about Charles Manson in this case that really you can almost go on about it forever. Right. I mean, but it made Bugliosi, this helter-skelter thing, the no, possibly, I think it's the number one selling true crime book ever written. So yeah. there's that yeah. over... Sorry, please yeah, I, I believe, you know, I've heard over 7 million copies worldwide, but that figure is probably 10 years old. So who knows how many now? But, uh, you know, he was handed a case that basically I, I don't think anybody else wanted it because the minute Manson was arrested, he had to be convicted because if you just look at the press coverage of it, this image that he was the one calling all the shots. He was the oldest person. He brainwashed these people. So the idea that he would possibly be acquitted was really unthinkable. So they had to find something to make it look good enough to get a conviction. And that's what they did with the Helter Skelter motor. And you know, it, sounds, got, it sounds good when you it sounds good until you start thinking about it for a few minutes and then you go, well, no, no, that's that's not right. And what can you state the name of your podcast for me again, please? Uh, it's the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast. I try to keep everything simple. 
Gotcha. So you can see it on iTunes so people can go back. Um, but also your book shows kind of a different, more nuanced view of what's known as the family. Like they literally had, I think it was Manson's first child together. And you said yes. that kind of was one of the bonding. They had multiple bonding events that kind of coalesced right. the group. Right? The birth of a baby into your group, that's kind of expanding it beyond this generation, really, and, and looking towards the future. And you're, you're almost like a, a, a miniature community when something like that happens and everybody witnesses and they're a part of it. So definitely the, the birth of the child, I think, was one big unifying uh, um, thing for the people who were there to see it. And also, and also the shooting kind of Manson gets uh, Tex Watson into his debt. So you're seeing these personal relationships kind of binding together. And yeah, well, I, I don't say I wouldn't say he got him into his debt. I mean, he was in his debt. If if you if you go out and do something and you say, George, would you please go take care of this? And I go there and it gets out of hand and I have to really take care of it. You owe me whatever I have to do to take care of it. I'm not luring you into anything, you know. I'm straightening out your problem. If it didn't work out the best way, that's not my problem. That's your problem. You created the problem. I was trying to solve the problem. And you also kind of say that Hinman wasn't really kind of some kind of innocent uh, player in this whole environment. Is that Would you agree with that? Well, I, I don't know what you mean by innocent player. I mean, uh, that's another instance where... Uh, Bugliosi says that Manson sent people to Gary Hinman's house because he heard he had an inheritance and that he was just simply going to go take it from him, no matter how what it took to get it, even kill him if you had to, just go and get his money, which is really an idea that's suddenly moving to strong arm robbery where murder is the is is the instrument you use if you have to. But Gary Hinman, uh, according to most evidence. Uh, including testimony from Bobby Beausoleil, who actually killed him and, and Charles Manson, um, supplied a mescaline to Beausoleil, and he took it to a, a, a biker gang, the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club, and they didn't like the mescaline, either it was bad or they weren't used to it. You know, he, as he said himself, it was really not a good idea to give mescaline to a motorcycle group because they're used to beer and downers. So they might have thought it was bad, and it could have been perfectly good. But in any case, it's a misunderstanding. And when Beausoleil went back to Hinman to get the money, uh, uh, things got out of hand. He, was, he had been threatened by the straight Satan. So he had a level of violence in the affair before he went over there. He didn't just go over there thinking, I'm going to beat this guy up. They had roughed him up at the ranch. So violence was already in the equation before he even went over there. And so Manson came over there. And there's so many different versions about what happened from different people. And unfortunately, as in a lot of cases, is this case, uh, uh, people change their stories and they're not totally forthright. So you have to really look at everybody's statements and recollections and testimony and weigh them with their credibility in regard to things they've said about other things. And a lot of times it's difficult because people like Susan Atkins and Charles Watson are just not very credible people. Their stories have changed so many times that it's hard to determine what to believe. So you really have to dig into it. You can look at uh, court transcripts. You can look at uh, testimony as reported in newspapers to see what people said and try to determine, uh, you know, a way things happen that makes sense. I always want to uh, try to do it that makes sense and not go with some far out theory or off the wall, one chance in a thousand that this happened. 
I believe uh, uh, in Occam's razor. You know, the simple solution is most likely the good one, is the correct one. And you mentioned their books in there. Susan Atkins has a book. Tex Watson did his own book. Right. You've had a relationship with Lynette Fromm, I think, uh, published her book for her. I, I know her, yeah, yes. And so um, there's this relationship with the Beach Boys, too, kind of a, a notorious part of the story. Can you talk mm -hmm. about their relationship and how that kind of played out? And Manson's, he had some well, de desire to be kind of become a, a music star or become in the music business, right? Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, he plays music. He's a musician. And uh, from my take of it, you know, a lot of people, they say, oh, he wanted to be a rock and roll star. And that resonates with people because probably most people would like to be rock and roll stars themselves. So they identify with that. But honestly, I think when it came to him, um, he was just being himself and playing music and playing his own songs and uh, not really entertaining his friends, but just playing music around them. And uh, if somebody said, gee, you might have a chance of being recorded, I can understand. Certainly he went into a recording studio to a recording song, so he was interested in it. But I think he looked at the whole thing and how Dennis Wilson lived and all the uh, intrigue in the industry and decided it wasn't really for him. So I think that this notion that he really had his hopes up about it is overblown and that he was angry because it didn't work out. I don't think that any of that's true, really. I think right. that's something they put out into the into the mainstream mind because most people would say, well, of course he wanted to be a rock and roll star. Who wouldn't? Right. But I mean, that really is like supposedly one of the central motivations for the Melcher House, right? Is that? Well, yeah, that that is. But I mean, uh, the revenge on Melcher deal, and uh, I think that the simple solution is that Tex Watson had been to the house before and knew the layout, and that's why he picked it. And sure, he had been to the house before when it was Terry Meltzer's house. But I don't think, uh, I mean, Watson was the leader of that crime. He's the one who did that crime at Cielo Drive. Manson told Watson to do something. Bobby Beausoleil had been arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman. And uh, that, again, gets more involved when you go back and look at the Hinman murder as to why that happened. Uh, Manson told me that the reason it happened is because after he cut Hinman's ear, uh, Hinman said he was going to go to the police, and Manson told him, I'm going to have to kill you because I'm not going to let you go to the police because if you do, I'm going to go back to prison. And so Hinman said, okay, I won't go to the police. So to Manson, your word is your bond. That's what you said. That's what you're going to do. Manson leaves. Hinman decides he is going to go to the police. And Bobby Beausoleil said, no, you gave him your word that you're not, and I'm not going to let you. And Bobby Beausoleil killed him to keep him from going to the police. And, you know, it gets, there are more shades and versions of things. And it's so easy with this case, uh, when I start talking about it, to think of some tangent and go off and forget about what I was talking about originally. But basically, that's it. I mean, this case is, it's really like an onion that they peel it and it keeps getting bigger. Right, but there's so many. It's really become what you could call it a cottage industry or whatever. Yeah. It's an industry in itself. So many books have come out of this that don't even have any first person like you, first person analysis or contact yeah. or anything like that. So yeah. it is yeah. important. And there's been other books. I've had another guest on called uh, about the Manson case, Operation Chaos, which we can go into yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, your thoughts about that. So Hinman, can you talk about what you really think happened on about the Tate and LaBianca mur murders? I mean, what's your kind of general impression? Well, 
Bobby Beausoleil had been arrested for the Hinman murder on August 6th. And I don't know when the people at Spons Ranch found out about it. I don't know when he got a phone call, what the charges were, who he called, who knew what when. But we know that he was arrested on August 6th, I believe at about 11 o'clock in the morning, and that the people at Spons Ranch went out to Cielo Drive on the evening of August 8th. So just over 48 hours later. To me, there's a big cause and effect there. I believe that uh, the motive offered, uh, the alternate motive offered during the trial from the very beginning was that they were trying to commit copycat murders to think that the killer of Gary Hinman was still at loose and that therefore the police would release Bobby Beausoleil. Now, I'm not putting that forward as a brilliant motive. It's very flawed, obviously, and uh, the, it didn't work. But that was why they went out um, to kill people, to make it look like the same killers. That's why they used it. They wrote uh, Bobby Beausoleil wrote political piggy on the wall over Hinman's body in his house. So they wrote pig on the front door of the Tate residence, the Polanski residence, to make that the similarity. Um, death to pigs in the LaBianca house to bring in the similarity. But you had different people doing it. Tex Watson at the time is also a self-admitted uh, user or abuser, if you will, of amphetamines for about two to three weeks before the murders in a violation of Manson's supposed orders that you weren't allowed to have speed on the ranch. So, so much for everybody doing exactly what Charlie says. But I think that explains a couple of things. Um, one is that he doesn't let you uh, think clearly. I don't know if you have any experience with amphetamines or people who use amphetamines to excess. Uh, they don't think clearly. Uh, and also, it explains the ferocity of the attacks, the uh, multiple stab wounds, 51. Overkill, yeah. Yeah, overkill. It's just out of control. Uh, again, it's almost you would have to, to really understand it, I think you would have to do speed for three or four days and see where your mind was at. And how dark is your soul? How black are you inside? You know? And Tex Watson had a history of drugs. Like he was dealing drugs and being involved in drug culture, drug burns, right? So well, he wasn't yeah. some, uh, wasn't not, he wasn't innocent. I mean, he wasn't clean, I guess, as far as the drug world was. I think you said that in your book, he was making a living off selling LSD and speed, right? Well, I, I, I'm not saying that he, he was doing that. I don't know how well he was doing it if he ended up back at Spawn's Ranch. You know, Spons Ranch was a, uh, a magical place, I've heard talking to people who were there. But at the same time, it was a it was a rundown place on the edge of town where you could live and kind of blend into the woods and the rocks and everything and and live. And uh, you didn't have to do a whole lot to get by. Right. And that was kind of their choice. They, they all kind of chose to be all these women and stuff chose to be with Manson in that kind of counterculture dropout lifestyle where they lived like that in abandoned homes and things like that. You show that in your book up in Topanga and things like that. Why do you think that, what about Charles? I think you write about some of the stuff in the book, but what about his personality that you saw that he had that kind of ability to really um, attract a lot of people into his group? You know, he's, he was very alive he was very fun. I couldn't believe uh, how how much good he could make out of the situation he was in. He was always seeing what he could do. 
he was always interested in in doing things, a very active, alive person. So I think people recognized that in him. And they wanted to be around him, and they wanted to be like him. He was very uh, self-assured. He was self-centered. Not self-centered, but I mean, he was grounded in himself. And I think a lot of people uh, admired that and wanted to be like that. Uh, he was very resourceful. Uh, he took care of people. He could find them things. You know, I, I've seen things where they say, well, Charles Manson would find out what you want, and then he would supply it to you, and that's, and that's how he would manipulate you. Well, no, that's just what somebody who cares about you does. They find out what your problems are and try to solve them. There's so much that uh, Manson did that was um, um, not, not exactly innocent, but not nefarious, that's been given this evil uh, tone to it. Like everything he did was... Uh, some scheme and some scam and he was always trying to figure out how to use people and he was just totally not like that yeah he's not entered he, yeah he's entered the world's kind of scape as one of the great villains like he's in these shows on Mindhunter and stuff like that as an exemplar did you see anything about him or thing about like people like are trying to ascribe to him kind of mind control or scientology did you ever sense anything from him or, or learn anything about his reading. I know that he liked Heinlein's book, Stranger in a Strange Land. Did any of his kind of philosophical sensibilities or where, where he got his philosophical outlook, where that came from? Do you ever sense that or uh, learn about it? I just missed about the last 10 or 15 seconds, I think. I'm oh, sorry. I was just saying that he's an interesting person. He seems to have had an interest in Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. And I know that according to Bugliosi's Helter Skelter, he was clear on Scientology. So did you ever get a sense of kind of his philosophical underpinnings or background you know, or what? He uh, you know, that, that that's a misrepresentation of what uh, I don't think that he had too great of an interest in Scientology. He was exposed to a little of it when he was inside. But that whole thing about being clear, uh, I was talking to T.J. Wallman, who was with Manson when he went into the Scientology Center in Hollywood, and he wasn't claiming to have reached clear. He was just asking, what's after clear? I think they took the inference that he was implying that he was at clear. But his question, I think, was more like you say, you know, the universe is endless. And then you say, well, what's after that? Or, you know, it's at certain, they, they say something like, well, there was a certain time, uh, time when time began. Well, what was before that? So he was just saying clear, what's after clear? Meaning, well, once you reach the top, then what? Right. So, so it was kind of taken to, mis to misrepresent the world that he was saying, well, I've reached clear, now what? But he was just kind of mocking and questioning their dogma. Gotcha. And what's yeah. your connection? I mean, you talk about uh, what Ed Sanders' book, the gar I think it was The Garbage People. I can't remember the title. The but family. they took the family. They took out the second chapter of the re relationship to the process. Did you sense or see any kind of process? connections when in your relationship to Charles Manson? No. Nothing. No, I think a lot of that's really overblown. You know, he would naturally be curious about different thoughts, but he was pretty much uh, on his own, in his own mind and not looking for anyone else to, to tell him how to do anything or how to react. He knew, he knew. Yeah. Cause I think Bugliosi said the two process, excuse me, two process members, Went and saw him in the jail or something, and then he claimed. Well, they, they might they might have done that because they were panicking, and who knows? It's just like Esalen denying he was ever there, and 
everybody right. wanted to disassociate themselves from him. Right. So know. he was at Esalen like a week before the murders, right? Or a couple uh, I, weeks? Think, I think it was a couple days before, maybe one or two days before. Wow. And uh, so why do you think that he, he, he went all the way up into kind of the high desert of Death Valley for a while with this whole before the winter came? Can you talk kind of about their interest in really going out there into uh, the wilds and, and what brought well, them back? Well, it, it, you know, it's, it's an amazing, beautiful place. And if you know where the water is and you know what you're doing, you can get by very well. So it's, uh, I've been there uh, when the ranch was still there, and it's certainly an attractive place that somebody would want to be. Right, and I think you said in the book, like, you went out there, too, or you kind of oh, traveled yeah. around. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, great place. And so you kind of have had some relationship, not just with Charles Manson, but also with some of the female people who were involved with him. Can you talk about that? Uh, I well, I don't really want to talk about personalities because you know anything I say can be taken and misconstrued, and uh, it's just my opinions. Uh, the the two main uh, people I've known were uh, or know are Lynette Fromey and Sandra Good, and I just can't say enough about their uh, loyalty and honor. It's just remarkable, and they're both very bright, uh, creative people. Uh, I don't want to get in too far beyond that, but uh, okay. they're not, the, and, and, and they're also certainly not people who are uh, following, if you will, Charles Manson and doing doing his every bidding by means. That's totally not happening. Right. And uh, yeah, they've become, I mean, it's not just Charles Manson, it's also those women. I think it was Van Houten tried to get out of jail parole and they wouldn't let her out um so no well that's that's all political and that's also bruce davis and i think bobby bosley got approved for uh parole once but that's just the state of california they're political prisoners basically and bosley's my understanding is he's not feeling he's kind of uh not doing well right isn't he in, in the hospital or was in the hospital i don't know if you know anything about that. I, I don't know i don't know and uh <clears throat> What do you think the motive was for the La Bianca uh, killings? Well, I think they were trying to create a series of killings, copycat killings, to uh, throw the police off the trail of Bobby Beausoleil. So they went out to uh, Cielo Drive the first night, and then they went to Waverly Drive the second night. And uh, why, why they stopped after that, I don't know. Maybe they were worn out. I mean, that's their, those are two intense nights. Right. And um, what are your thoughts? I mean, I mean, you've seen some of this other like I interviewed Tom O'Neill about Operation Chaos. Did you ever get a sense that Manson had? Some, I mean, there were kind of weird things happening in uh, California at that time. And you actually your I think your second chapter really goes in in detail about the 60s and how turbulent that was. Did you ever get the sense of some kind of an intel operation or some type of favoritism for Charles Manson? No, you know, I read O'Neill's book. I, I finally had to because so many people were talking about it. I think that uh, the, uh, I never, uh, I didn't see any of that connection between him being at the free clinic and hanging out with the people that were there supposedly involved in all these uh, intelligence operations. And uh, let's see the other part of that question. Well, I think his his view is that there was the whole do there was a whole car theft operation 
or if there was something Charles was involved with stealing cars and that he got away from that. Oh, it's yeah. It's kind of okay. inexplicable. Yeah, I think, you know, I was interested to read in O'Neill's book when you're talking about uh, Charlie's parole officer, uh, was basically a not a full-time parole officer, and he didn't have many uh, clients, and he was just doing it as a temporary job while he waited to do something else, and he, uh, he just, uh, by chance, got hooked up with Charles Manson, and he liked him. So I think he uh, saw that uh, in situations where he could have uh, revoked his parole, that it wasn't really necessary and counterproductive. So I don't think he was, uh, Charlie was being shown any favoritism by up on high. I just think that by a stroke of luck, he got a good uh, parole officer who gave him a lot of breaks and liked him, which is understandable considering his personality and how likable he was. And also the situations were not, uh, you know, a lot of times these uh, penalties are not warranted based on whatever the offense is supposed to be. And can you explain, like, I th and my understanding is that Manson was much more networked and much more friendly to a lot of people in Hollywood before the Tate-LaBianca murders. Can you talk more about the, his kind of uh, associations and network at that time? Well, I, as a, you know, he's a, he's a person and he's interested in people and he's interested in what they're doing and he's very interested in people. So, I mean, I would think anybody he met, he would... Uh, uh, associate with and you know unless they were totally repulsive to him he would be around a lot of people and probably a lot more people than admit you know now or then who want to dis distance themselves from anything having to do with them so it's hard to tell with that who who's telling the truth about what happened right and how i mean you met him and talked with him mostly when i think all the time that he was in jail what how did you think yeah that he adapted to, like Corcoran's right in the middle of nowhere. It's right in the middle of the state of California. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about his what he was like in jail? Well, he was jail, really. I mean, that's that's the whole thing about him. He's totally institutionalized for his whole life. And, uh, you know, when I first saw him in the visiting room when he wasn't behind glass, I could almost feel the, the prison vibration radiating off of him. He came walking out, and I just looked at him, and I thought, this guy is prison. And that's what he is. He's raised in institutions for most of his life. That's where he got his values from guards after World War II who were ex-servicemen, uh, teaching him about hierarchies and protocols and procedures. And he learned all that. And he uh, knew it his whole life, and that was his background. You know, uh, people on the outside, maybe they don't have uh, strong people giving them values. But he was in there for years and learned all this stuff, and he applied it to his life and to the lives of the people around him. And I mean, there's kind of like his Atwa kind of views. Do you? What are your thoughts about his kind of uh, kind of return to nature kind of sensibility? Did you guys ever talk about that? Well, that's a, one of his primary interests, if you will, is the environment and and. Uh, much more so than uh, any thought of being a rock and roll star or anything, because he realizes that that is the most important thing uh, above politics and everything else. People are just starting to wake up to that now with all their panic about climate change, but he was aware of that, and the people around him were aware of that uh, when they were out over 50 years ago. 
Right. They lived or wanted to live out in the desert, I think, is because they appreciated how far somebody could go on how little resources that you could use, like careful management and respect of water, air, land, that you could really make it work instead of abusing it and trying to milk every last penny you can out of everything. And do you, do you kind of take that position that his whole or the alleged kind of race war, kind of Armageddon going into the tunnel out in the desert, a lot of that was fabricated or just not true or over, over I think, emphasized. I think Would that, you agree with that? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of people sitting around have a lot of conversations about things. And Manson is certainly one who engaged someone in conversation and say, what do you think about this or that? And I'm not surprised that given the uh, times with the uh, racial unrest at the time, uh, like it is now, that uh, people wouldn't think that and talk about it, certainly, and uh, certainly hypothesize about what might happen and this might happen and that might happen. But as far as it being his guiding philosophy, uh, it's not like that. I, I don't see that he was... Sure, he might have said, well, there's going to be a race war and this and that and the other, and we can hide out in the desert until it's over. I'm sure things like that must have been talked about. I mean, the helter-skelter concept did come from somewhere. You know, I'm not saying Bugliosi made it up. If they were talking about a, a final war and calling it helter-skelter, that very well might have been happening at Spawn's Ranch. But that doesn't mean that Manson was preaching it and promoting it all the time and much less trying to instigate it. I think more than anything, they wanted to get away from it. And then when you see where they went, that's pretty good, solid evidence that that's what they wanted to do. People are talking about civil war right now. So, I mean, we're yeah, kind of, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, those are those sixties were rough years. Um, yeah. let's see. Uh, we're at about 36 minutes. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd like to, anything I missed before we wrap it up about your book? Cause we didn't cover everything. Well, there's a lot more. Yeah, no, I mean, like I say, there's a lot that you could talk about. Uh, I'd like people to read the book and see, uh, as I said, I'm trying to present a level-headed, common-sense explanation of what happened that fits the evidence that we know about. I don't like to talk and speculate about a lot of things we don't know about. I think we should look at things that we know happened, uh, true things, try to take those events and put them into some kind of order so that you can get some understanding about why these crimes happened. But why they happened is not what most people think. When I started writing the book, I thought, nobody believes the helter-skelter motive is true, so why are you even doing this? But then I realized when I looked around in media that even places like the New York Times supposedly suspected, uh, respected, suspected, that's a Freudian slip, uh, supposedly respected uh, media outlets were still putting it forth. So it is a that most people have. And to, to look back on the things that happened with, through that lens is, uh, you know, it, it's a distortion of what the reality was. And so I'd like and to do that. There are, there are many other alternate theories of the crime, uh, and most of them are very conspiratorial, and people take this clue and that clue and, tr a clue and try to string them all together, whereas if I see uh, a piece of evidence or a clue that doesn't fit, well, it doesn't fit because it has no relevance. So uh, uh, I think that the version of the crimes that I put forward is the closest one to the true one. 
And I'm not saying that I answer every question or cover every little discrepancy or can explain every little odd happening. But I think, as I say, if you look at it with a common sense point of view, that's what I tried to do, approach this with more than anything is really common sense. Gotcha. And I mean, uh, do you mind taking a few questions, uh, George? No, no. Here's Go one. Uh, he, it's from We Steals Plato Snakes. Did you ever hear, hear anything about Dr. Julian West from the Monarch Program treating Manson, as well as Jack Ruby or, or Timothy McVeigh? Did you hear anything like that? No. Nothing. So no Julian West, because that's kind of the central premise of uh, Operation Chaos is Julian West and Sidney Gottlieb no. and uh, all that stuff. So you never saw any of that. No. Um <clears throat> So Manson never mentioned Jolly and West either. Huh? Oh no! And I mean, I mean, I mean, if he did, it must have been in the middle of of some rambling, uh, you know, something that I didn't pick up on. But we certainly didn't sit around talking about it ever. And during I, would, your... I wouldn't say that in I wouldn't say that in over almost two hundred visits and hundreds of phone calls, he never said Jolly West. But I didn't pick up on it. And, you, and during, I mean, I have a question. During your research, you kind of came across other Manson researchers in Nicholas Schreck and, and Anton LaVey's daughter, correct? So did they, mm -hmm. do you find that their views were similar to yours? Did you find them helpful? Or what? what's your kind of thought on their take? Because I think they adopted kind of a, more of a cult kind of Charlie Manson kind of view. Is that true? That's a two question. Well, I mean, they, they certainly helped me uh, because they, almost introduced me to Manson. So that was a big foot in the door. And I'm very appreciative to them for that. But uh, Nicholas and I, uh, as he put it, we have a gentleman's agreement to disagree about certain things. And that's about as far as I want to go with that. Gotcha. And you worked with Adam Parfrey. I think he just passed away too. So uh, I didn't, I met Adam. I didn't really work with him, but oh, okay. I, met him on, I, I saw him, I visited him, uh, him up in uh, Oregon and at his publishing house and met him in LA once. And you're saying that Manson was not a Scientologist, right? That's mm -hmm. what we talked about earlier. So yeah. no, Manson was not a Scientologist. So some of this stuff on Bulliosi, like there's a lot of stuff that's very questionable. Going back and reading that book, and I think that's the central part of Operation Chaos too, is like there's some stuff in there that uh, Bulliosi was. Uh, it's like, Bulliosi has some very questionable, I mean, stuff like his other books. Uh, you know, or fit for some analysis and questions. Yeah, I, I, you know, people bring up about uh, things about his life, and I suppose uh, uh, it's a reflection on his character, but I don't like to dwell on that stuff. I'm more concerned with how he handled the case and his attitude towards Charles Manson. So a lot of people bring up stuff about Vincent Biliosi's uh, personal life that are not really of any interest to me. I mean, they do, I guess, give an insight into his character, but uh, I, I would I wouldn't use them for anything I'm doing because they're not really. I think I can get enough with just seeing how he handled Manson's case, but I don't have to go any further than that work with him. Well, I agree with that. But his take on the Kennedy assassination, which is, uh, you know, it was just uh, one guy, is pretty incredible, in my opinion. I, I, I didn't see it. I, I haven't read all his. Okay, books. well, you're, a couple of them, but. you're probably much more fortunate. So, That's where good. is the best place to get the book Goodbye Her Helter Skelter? Well, you can get it on Amazon.com, and it is in bookstores, but you can also order it directly from my website, uh, www.goodbyehelterskelter.com, and if you do, I will sign it, so that's a little extra that you won't get with Amazon. Let's see if I can pull up your website right here. 
There it is right there. Goodbye, Helter Skelter. So you can see the reviews. Contact information's there as well if you'd like to reach right. out to George Simpson. Right. Uh, one more question. Did Charles ever talk about Tex Watson? Did you ever hear anything mentioned while you were with Charles Manson? He said that Tex kept his word and Tex paid him back and he had no problem with Tex. And there's a lot of pictures in this book, too. You can see a lot of pictures of you with Charles Manson hanging out. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. There it is there. Um, yeah, so it's great. So, again, and you mention your podcast one more time for me. I'll put it in the show notes it's as well. Called, it's called the Goodbye Helter Skelter Podcast, and uh, I put it up on uh, Podbean has it, uh, iHeartRadio, uh, Apple Podcasts, and, and it's also up on YouTube. So you can just go to YouTube and look it up. I think I've got five episodes up so far. Gotcha. And again, the author's name is George Stimson. Title of the book is Goodbye Helter Skelter, A New Look at the Tate-LaBianca Murders. And it was just published, I think, 2014 and then redone in 2019. Mm -hmm. Currently has 108 five-star ratings on uh, Amazon. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Stay there.